time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cycling, and related topics. The Outspoken Cyclist on-air show is heard every Saturday morning, 7.30 a.m. in Northeastern Ohio on WJCU 88.7 FM and streamed at WJCU.org. Our weekly podcast is available at the close of the on-air show at OutspokenCyclist.com or download it with your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. This is our show for August 15th, 2020. Ah, the Ides of August, whatever that might mean. First, I'd like to congratulate my friend Jen Dice. She recently took over the helm of People for Bikes. Tim Blumenthal retired after 16 years, and Jen, who was the COO, is now president and CEO. She hit the ground running and draws on her many years, not only at People for Bikes, but as the fearless leader of IMBA before that. And it's so nice to see another woman at the helm of a big bicycling organization. So our show this week comes to you from both Washington, D.C. and Amsterdam, Holland. First up is Gabe Klein. He's a partner at Cityfy. It's an organization that facilitates and helps create positive, sustainable change for people in the economy fast. I like that they say they can do it fast because heaven knows we need some change fast. He's also the former commissioner of the Chicago and Washington, D.C. Departments of Transportation. Gabe is cognizant of so much of what is happening, from the effects of shutting down in the pandemic to what he thought the future would be in 2030. Much of what has suddenly transpired because of the pandemic has left Gabe with thoughtful, interesting, and actionable ideas for all of us. After our conversation with Gabe, we're going to head to Amsterdam to speak with Lucas Snage. Lucas is the Communications and Community Manager for Bikes, BYCS, an Amsterdam-based social enterprise driven by the belief that bicycles transform cities and cities transform the world. Last week, when we spoke with Matt Pinder up in Toronto, he mentioned the Bicycle Mayor program from Bikes, and me, wanting to know more, contacted them. Lucas and I will dive into that program, along with some of the other work the organization does. So let's head down to Washington, D.C. to speak with Gabe Klein. Hi, Gabe. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. August 9th, you and Kay Chang, who I do not know, but you published a great op-ed piece in Business Insider titled, America's Big Cities Have Blocked Off Streets to Cars During the Pandemic. It Should Stay That Way. And so, of course, I agree with that, but I'd like to know why you say that and how we can make that happen. Well, um, first of all, thanks for for having me on. And, um, you know, I was Thinking back to the 2008 financial crisis, and I was thinking about how, you know, gas revenues, well, gas prices went down dramatically. And as you know, we fund a lot of our, our infrastructure with the gas tax. And so gas prices went down to a buck 50 or $2, you know, from 450. I thought if we had pegged the gas price at $3, give pe- giving people a great deal, but taking that delta between a buck fifty and three dollars, 
and put it into infrastructure for bike and ped and transit, God, imagine the system that we would have today. Let's say the real price of gas went up to $2.80. So there's still a 20 cent delta there. And, and so we have to take advantage of these moments as painful as they are when we have these crises and things change to try to fix some of the systemic problems from our past. And one of the problems we have is that we have terribly unsafe streets. Um, we have an epidemic of pedestrian and, and cyclists and car uh, uh, fatalities, you know, people in, in automobiles. And so when I started to think about, you know, and Kay was thinking about this as well, like, so we're making all these physical changes in our streets, you know, creating promenades and streeteries and adding in temporary bike facilities. You know, why should we take it back? Um, this is an opportunity and I hate to use the term opportunity because obviously it's a very painful time, but even in a painful time, it's an opportunity to fix the wrongs of the past, whether they be, you know, from an equity standpoint, you know, people in poor neighborhoods have five times less uh, parks than in wealthier neighborhoods. So are we going to get people temporary space and then take it back, you know, after we have a vaccine? So as the uh, lockdowns ease and, and businesses start to, reopen and, and kids can go back to school, why would we make it less safe? Why would we make it less sustainable? And so this is really an appeal to the public at large to think differently, but also the heads of major cities and smaller towns to think differently about um, how the streets can be used and also how it, how it powers some of the uh, private sector companies, whether it be like Spin or whether it be your local bike share system, to use the streets differently. It makes their businesses work and it makes uh, people healthier. That seems like a win-win to me. I, I'm glad that, that your dog agrees with me. So it'll be interesting because when we edit this, the dog will not be on the show. <laughs> but people do, know, <laughs> people do know that I have a dog and that she does bark when somebody comes to the door or whatever. Who knows? Anyway, she's, she's touchy, but she's a, she's a great dog. Uh, and we just, mm -hmm. lost, we just lost our other one. So she's sort of oh, bereft. Yeah, I know. Thanks. I appreciate that. Let me remind our listeners, we're speaking with Gabe Klein. So the work he does is with a company called CityFi right now, but he was the former transportation czar in Chicago and Washington, D.C. We've had him on the show before. It's been a while. It was in 2019 at some point, earlier, like April, I think. Yeah. One of the things that you referenced in your article, which I thought was fascinating because 1911 is an interesting year. My mother was born in that year. So I really was interested in watching that little film. There's a film that you reference uh, that was put together by, I guess, MoMA, a Museum of Modern Art in New York. Yeah. And, yep. you know, you see that the streets were dominated by pedestrians, mostly men in suits with kind of cool hats. But there were also horses, <laughs> horses and carts or carriages. And there were so many street vendors. So though we, those might be our, our businesses today that are expanding out into sidewalks. But you said something that was so interesting that you mentioned that parking wasn't about parking. It was about parks. And so it yeah. never occurred to me that, that that's what that was about. So what do you see as some of these streetscapes change to offer 
you know, vendors outside like they do in Europe. I mean, we're in Cleveland. I, I mean, it's such a broad and kind of sprawling city. But New York City, of course, is very different. You can have these little streets. Philadelphia is like that. How do you think these cities are going to be able to navigate, not meaning navigate, uh, as going forward? Will they be able to continue to do this? And what's their incentive for doing it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. You know, one is, um, I actually wrote a book called Startup City in 2015, and, and about, like the last third of the book is sort of predictive, right? It's like, what's coming in the future? What is 2030 going to look like? And my prediction was that people would lead simpler lives, that technology would run in the background, not in the foreground, and that people would spend more time in their neighborhoods, in their communities. They might barter with other people for fresh vegetables or things that they have that they don't have that people would use the internet to travel more, to have meetings. And so what's interesting about what's happening with the pandemic is sort of a force function on the future happening much faster. Things that were already in motion. And so when you look at what cities are dealing with now, I I think aspects of this are going to take hold permanently. Um, I think that, you know, we were already teleworking more. We were already looking for more bike lanes and more park space, more ways to enjoy our streets people locally on their block enjoying their streets versus the pass-through traffic from the suburbs coming through. And this is part of the resurgence of the city. And so, you know, it is interesting to look back in history and see that park space, that parking was about park space. And every street, uh, like in Washington, D.C., was supposed to have half the street be devoted to park space. And when the, when the park space went away, it was replaced by horses and buggies, and then it was replaced by cars uh, parking. And then finally, the trees went away, and all that was left was the park in space. And so I think history can be very instructive because everything that we've experienced in the 20th century is very much temporary. Um, We've lived for tens of thousands of years on the planet in different ways, and we're going to live in different ways again. And so as human beings, sometimes we get very caught up in what we can see today as evidenced by people that don't believe that the coronavirus is real or that the environment is collapsing because they can't see it. But the reality is these things are happening all around us. The world is changing. It's going to change more. We can shape that change in a positive way. We can make our streets uh, wonderful places where our kids can play. Or we can make them places where 6,000-pound SUVs speed at whatever speed they want to. And I think that is not the future uh, that we want. And I think with the change in administration, which I am praying for in November, I think you will see a federal government, many state governments, and cities aligned in what that they want that future to look like. So post-pandemic, I'm hopeful uh, that we can really fulfill a lot of these plans to make cities more equitable, safer, more child-friendly, and more business-friendly. Well, you you raised the word equitable. You you referenced equitable, and and I do want to talk about how transportation, especially inner-city transportation, seems to affect disproportionately, the same as the virus, the same as healthcare, the same as other economic issues, a citizenry that is less affluent, that is less white. And so I'm wondering how you see transportation helping that. Now, of course, the bicycle is a great equalizer. Everybody, well, most everybody can ride a bicycle whether it's electric assist or pedal assist or not, uh, whether it's a, a bike share or not. But we also have public transportation that people aren't taking right now because they're afraid with the pandemic. So 
how do you see cities reacting to this population now that it seems to be at the top of everybody's mind after like all these years? Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel in some ways lucky. I was the son of a civil rights activist fought all through the 60s for civil rights. And I was sort of brought up being very aware of the disparities and discrepancies. I do think for, well, I also live in Washington, D.C., which is uh, a, a majority black city. I think for a lot of Americans, this year has been a real wake-up call. They were not aware of the systemic racism. They were not aware of the leg down that so many people in our society have had and the privilege that others have had. And so, you know, we at City 5 always believe that equity needs to be baked in. It can't be an afterthought. You know, I mean, not that we're equity experts per se, but this is what we care about. You know, we care about uh, fair, uh, you know, equal, uh, equitable cities. And so um, I think that with particularly with the transit issues that we're facing, you know, San Francisco is saying they're going to have to get rid of 40 percent of their bus lines permanently. That means you've got to find other ways to get people around. And the, look, the public sector can't do it all on their own. They need the scooter companies and the bike companies, right? Uh, they need the delivery companies. They need the restaurant to produce food for low-income people and to maybe pay them to do that. Uh, I think sometimes in these tough times, we have to come together and we do come together and we figure out how to serve the citizenry. And as we do that, we can't focus on serving just the people at the top because they're not at the most need. Like right now, people like me that have white collar, you know, incomes uh, are almost back to normal in terms of income. And 50 percent of people in the lower income brackets that are service workers are still not working. Right. And so those are the people that we need to be focused on. A lot of those people are people of color. They are people that have not had the opportunities that others have had. and so. You know, I actually think Joe Biden's Build Back Better program, when I first heard it, I was like, yeah, that's not very catchy. But I realized, you know, if we can build equity into everything that we're going to rebuild, we're going to rebuild a lot post-pandemic, a lot post, you know, 20th century infrastructure boom. Let's do it in a different way. Let's take down those freeways that separated neighborhoods. Let's talk to people in their communities about what they want to see on their streets. But let's educate them as to what the options are, what the possibilities are, you know, um, and that the automobile, while it's been a status symbol, can be something that bankrupts you as well if you, if you have to make a capital in, in investment. And I think we're also seeing a generational shift. You know, we originally launched uh, Capital Bikes here in D.C. in 2010. I remember, you know, the first bit, the first six months, I saw a lot of like young white people on it. Then over time, I saw a lot of younger Asian people, Southeast Asian people, African-American people. Ethiopian people. And then over time, maybe a couple of years later, because I, I, I went to Chicago and, and I came back and I was like, oh my God, there's people, there's African American people in their 60s riding capital bike, shirt bikes. Now, is it exactly where it should be? No, but it's getting better. And I think we need to stop stigmatizing transportation about it being for certain people. And we need to also give everybody equal access to safe routes. And so that's something I'm very hopeful for. Once again, we're speaking with Gabe Klein. He's with CityFi. He is a transportation guru, as far as I'm concerned. He gets it oh, from the you. ground up. I have one more really, I think it's an important question. I hope it's an important question. Cities are finding themselves, and states, are finding themselves in such an economic crunch right now between or among things like the pandemic, like trying to get schools open, trying to do all of these things. 
how do you suggest that government work with whomever, planners, uh, legislators, uh, citizens, to change the infrastructure, even on that, you know, sort of granular local level, that we can start to actually make some of these changes and let them spread out? Yeah. Uh, you know, look, as, as somebody that works in government, I have a lot of friends in government in all levels of position. Um, I feel for them because the operational strain right now is incredibly challenging. And you have people being furloughed, laid off in government. It was not good before in terms of the workload to personnel ratio. So I think people are emotionally strained and tired, and it depends on the city. Uh, but I think that sometimes when we don't have a lot of money, it forces us to be creative. And one of the things I learned in Chicago in, in particular is that um, these are not expensive projects. These, these, like I built a $360, I mean, $360 million uh, bridge system in D.C. that nobody has ever asked me about, literally never asked me about. But they want to know about the 15th Street bike lane that we did on a shoestring, or they want to know about the capital bike share system that we did on a shoestring. So the things that really impact people's lives are sometimes not the most expensive. And you look at some of the tactical urbanism that we're doing in cities where we're just literally putting up a barrier at the end of a, a, of a local street block so the kids can play in the street. I mean, what did that cost? You know, a few hundred dollars. It's the political will, right? It's the political will, and it's being told that it's okay to do it. I think what we're seeing right now is with all the, the financial fallout, and we are working on a budget resilience program, actually, at City Fire to try to help cities with this. But even with that, we're seeing a lot of cities doing a lot with less. And I'm, I'm again, hopeful because it's the political will. Uh, and the, the generational shift that we're seeing also in political leadership in cities, but also in leadership in Department of Transportation, Public Works, is great to see. You know, people maybe being a little bolder understanding that there's a huge environmental impact, safety impact, health impact of uh, making these changes. Um, and if you care about children, you care about the elderly, you care about the disabled, you want to play in your streets for them. And so I think fundamentally, you know, that should be our goal and then everybody else is going to be okay. And um, so I'm, I'm, again, hopeful. Hopeful is a great word. And I heard it used again today that I think it was the Biden-Harris campaign already is talking about the word hope, which, of course, we haven't yeah. heard for about eight years, as I remember, or four years. Sorry, four years, as I remember. It seems like well, people, eight years. <laughs> yeah, people need hope now more than ever. And in the middle of a pandemic, to have a leader in the Oval Office that is just tearing people down is just it's i've never seen it uh not in america in my lifetime it's i think it's completely un-american uh and racist and you know all, all the rest so i'm i am thrilled actually with the energy that i'm seeing this week behind this ticket and hoping me too. Well, we've been talking with Gabe Klein. He's always fun to talk with, and he's always got some great ideas. So I need to tell you that I did register for CityFi's webinar series. Oh, great. So can you just briefly tell my listeners what it is? And I am specifically interested in webinar number seven, of course, because it's it, it 
you know, speaks to my heart. But just basically, yeah. just tell us a little bit about this webinar series coming up. Well, first of all, thanks for bringing it up because it's really tied into what we're talking about. Right. Um, it's about driving uh, in the recovery from this terrible year. And it's about, you know, a, a bunch of different issues, I think, that are really pertinent and really important. And, and I would say that the idea of regenerative cities is really central. You know, cities are living, breathing uh, organisms made up of cells of people, right? And so, you, you know, I think that what we're doing is we're calling out, like, how can cities use replacement of, of trips? with technology like telehealth to help people from an equity standpoint, people that are immunocompromised. We're talking about in session two, August 27th, we'll be talking with the heads of the Denver DOT and Pittsburgh DOT. Um, and we, we talk about how are they helping uh, business, particularly small businesses to, to open and be more successful by repurposing public space. We're going to talk about digital equity closing the revenue gap in cities and how we help cities do that and mobility hubs and smart transportation and the sort of physical and virtual hubs. Um, and so I think that's really interesting. And then we're going to have a couple of sessions that's just called ask me anything where we can do things like this and you can put us in the spot and say, well, what do you think about this? And hopefully we say something awkward. So, um, <laughs> if you go to, if you go to cityfy.co, um, you can see the um, webinar and webinar series. Yes, you can. Thrive in the Economic Recovery Webinar Series. And I'm, I'm really excited to be able to attend some. I may not be able to attend all, but I might come to one of the Ask Me Anythings just so I can bust your chops a little bit. Gabe, thank yeah, you. <laughs> thank you so much for talking with me today. I know you are on just a – isn't it amazing that we're busier now than we've ever been? It's just crazy. Oh. It's Absolutely swamped. Have a great weekend. Absolutely Thank you swamped. so much. Talk you to you too. again. All Thanks right. for having me. Yeah. Okay, bye. Bye. Gabe Klein joined me to talk about the work he and Cityfy are doing for cities all over the U.S. as we try to navigate the immense changes we are seeing and need to make going forward. If you're interested in Cityfy, including signing up for the webinar series, you can log on to cityfy.com. C-I-T-Y-F-I dot C-O. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk with Lucas Snage about bicycle mayors. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. The Outspoken Cyclist is proud to have Bike Law as a trusted partner. If you find yourself in need of legal advice or assistance as it pertains to any cycling issue, log on to bikelaw.com. On the Outspoken Cyclist, I'm your host, Diane Jenks. Bikes is looking for a few good people to become a bicycle mayor. 
Your role, should you meet the challenge, is to be a catalyst to bring together the public and private realms to uncover the massive economic, health, and environmental benefits of increasing cycling capacity. Bikes is uncovering new ideas, working with others to deliver action, and promoting innovations that support better cycling for all. Let's learn more about Bicycle Mayors and the social enterprise, as it is called in Holland, that believes bicycles can transform the world. Hello, Lucas. Welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me all the way from Amsterdam. So every American who rides a bike would love to either ride or live in Amsterdam. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. Hi, Dan, and thanks for having me uh, on the show. I, I actually moved uh, to Amsterdam from Los Angeles, so I uh, am considerably happier in my daily life here than I was there in terms of transportation options. Yes, I am sure that you are. How long have you been there? A year and a half now. Nice. So I'm starting to feel uh, like a true Dutchman. I guess, I guess. Well, I want to talk with you about the Bicycle Mayor Program but the organization that sort of sponsors it or puts it together is also very interesting. So can you give us some information and background on BYCS and what it is and what it does? Yeah, sure. So Bikes or BYCS is a Dutch social enterprise that was founded in 2016, so relatively young. We're based out of Amsterdam and we're really working within the framework of facilitating the, de the development of a bicycle culture in cities across the world. So we're not an urban planning firm. We really uh, focus our activities around behavioral change initiatives, research, advocacy, co-creation and awareness campaigns that all kind of are seen through this lens of the bicycle, not only as a tool for sustainable transportation, but also social progress. So whether it's to attain gender fair cities, decrease urban inequality, improve community health, foster neighborhood economies, or ensure urban resilience, which has been kind of brought to the fore recently with the pandemic, we see the bicycle as a strong tool for societal transformation. And, uh, you know, we're a small, young team, we work in quite a horizontal structure and all wear many hats. So I'm uh, managing the communication strategy, but also take part in research initiatives and support the development of the Bike Mayor Network in the Americas. Aha, which we will get to soon. So last week we spoke with Matt Pinder, whom I assume you either know or know of. Indeed I do. And yeah. his work. And he mentioned the Bicycle Mayor Program, which is what brought me to you. So Bikes or BYCS is asking for a goal of 50% of all trips to be made by bicycle by 2030. How's that going? I, I imagine in Holland, it's going way better than it is here. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's always a, an interesting uh, question, right? Because 50 by 30 sounds and in some ways can be seen as totally utopian when you look at the modal share of cycling in cities, even like Amsterdam or Copenhagen, they're stable at around 30, 32%. Uh, in New York, you know, I think the numbers from 2017 were around three to four percent. Uh, other kind of very cycling forward cities like Berlin are about 15 percent. So it is somewhat of a bold claim that we make to advance our mission to really get more people on bikes. I think that if we have 20 or 30 percent of people cycling in the next decade, that's amazing. Uh, you know, but all of our programs are driven by this urban dream, I guess, 
of more people cutting their unnecessary trips that they take, um, you know, in their private vehicles and, and really get on the bike. I think numbers for the U.S. are staggering, uh, something like over 60% of trips um, by car under six miles. And in many U.S. cities, the terrain is quite flat. The weather is quite clement. So there is this possibility of switching to the bike. It's just not ingrained in the culture. And model of urban planning is still very much focused around the automobile. That is so true. Let me remind our listeners, we're speaking with Lucas Snage. He is the Community and Communications Manager for Bikes, B-Y-C-S, which is, I didn't even realize, you know, if I had pronounced it, I would have figured out that that's what it meant, which is a uh, an organization, I assume you are based in Amsterdam, is that correct? We are. Yeah, okay. Yes. So let's just talk about a couple of your initiatives and the Bikes to Work and Bikes Lab, and then we'll start talking about bicycle mayors. Sure. So those are our, let's say, more local programs that we activate as a consulting firm, basically, um, and work with governments, but also some private sector businesses to help incentivize the use of the bicycle in the city. So Bikes to Work is our employee activation program. We have a digital leaderboard where employees see progress as they compete with one another through various challenges linked to bicycle commuting. So kind of this gamification idea. Uh, and obviously we do that also through research insights, activations, events, and cycling showcases, et cetera, to really dive deep into why cycling is beneficial. Um, so for example, we've done a campaign called Go Cycling uh, in the context of World Mental Health Day, where we're really talking about the benefits of cycling for mental and physical health. Uh, in the context of a lot of employees feeling pressure from work or stress, et cetera. So uh, those are the types of uh, things that we do. And so one of our main partners there is uh, the Zaudas Business District in the south of Amsterdam. And we're now working to kind of package this to other, well, either companies or business districts uh, in the Netherlands, but also in Europe and beyond. The other uh, initiative that you mentioned, the Bikes Labs, is an interesting one. Uh, it's a kind of pop-up activation that we really embed within the fabric of the city in which we are uh, working in. Uh, most of this has been done, once again, in the Netherlands for about three years. But we, we've also done one in Rio de Janeiro. We've done one in Munich. We've done one in Dublin. And uh, we really want to do more uh, around the world because there are these very inclusive participatory workshops where we can both engage with civil society and really understand their needs and desires in terms of uh, urban infrastructure, but also uh, awareness about the potential benefits of cycling for both, you know, any anywhere from um, early childhood development and their caregivers to, uh, like I mentioned in the Bikes to Work program, employees, but also people that just want to move through the city in a more efficient, sustainable way. And so we have these type of workshop formats. Sometimes we align this with an existing conference, but sometimes we really just work with the local government to uh, create an activation. And we're hoping to scale this in the future because it gives us, one, uh, a lot of insight into the needs of people, which is really what we want to focus on. And it also enables us to capture a lot of qualitative data to then uh, integrate within our own programs. And it kind of creates this uh, learning loop that we want to build upon. So I have a couple of questions about a couple of things you've said. So the Bikes to Work, uh, here we have the League of American Bicyclists that have bicycle-friendly businesses, and they become a bicycle-friendly business by meeting certain criteria. Is what you're doing with Bikes to Work working more with businesses or more with the people who are going to work? So we really work on the business side, so on the employer side. 
we either create, for example, incentives for employees to go to work by bike, and that either uh, is based on consultancy. So make sure that if you're a larger company, you have a shower or a place for people to change if they're sweaty when they arrive to work. Uh, some employees, we recommend subsidy schemes for e-bikes for people that live further away. And then we also obviously intervene in the offices. Well, obviously no longer due to the uh, pandemic, but we would go in and kind of give these talks or uh, really present research on these benefits to try and shift the perception around cycling to work. The other question I have is concerning what's happening worldwide with the pandemic. How has it changed what you're doing and are you still able to accomplish some of these goals in the Bikes to Work and Bikes Lab programs? That side of our organization has been impacted. On the other hand, our Bicycle Mary Network, which uh, we will be talking about shortly, I believe, um, has been extremely busy. On that front, um, you know, from the implementation of temporary infrastructure all around the world to just the sheer amount of new cyclists in urban centers around the world and even smaller cities, the time of the bicycle has finally arrived and we're starting to see uh, both governments, the private sector and civil society uh, recognize these benefits. And these are, you know, issues that we've been discussing for four years now and that our founders have been really uh, carrying for, for longer than that of uh, the bicycle as kind of this fail-safe, reliant, efficient way to get around the city. And right now, it's really a safety net for a lot of people that still need to move through the city, that cannot uh, necessarily uh, work from home uh, and, uh, you know, or just want to move around and avoid the uh, potential threats of public transportation. So I have a real quick question about the organization for which you're working and that is, how is Bikes funded? So that's the interesting, I guess, business model of the company. As I mentioned when we uh, began this conversation, we're a social enterprise. And a social enterprise is an entity that is specific to Dutch law. And uh, we kind of operate kind of as a traditional private sector company uh, where we have services in the market um, in an kind of entrepreneurial or innovative manner, I guess we could be considered a startup since we're only four years old and, you know, and a very small team, except that we use these profits and redirect these profits towards social objectives and programs. So we're not profit driven, yet we have services in the market and the profits that we make from, for example, our bikes to work program or our bikes lab or our bicycle architecture biennale, which is an exhibit that we do with partners we reinvest into our social initiatives like the Bicycle Mayor Program. We're also uh, related to the program uh, in the process of establishing an, in a small foundation in India. So we, we really kind of have this circuitous model of redirecting cash flow to impact-driven initiatives. And on the side, we're also right now, as we are growing and have had kind of this exponential interest in our Bicycle Mayor Program, looking for larger partners such as foundations or, um, you know, philanthropic investors, et cetera, to help us also uh, carry through all of these projects. Let me remind our listeners once again, we're speaking with Lucas Snage. He is the community and communications manager for the Bikes, B-Y-C-S programs out of Amsterdam. We're going to take a real quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the Bicycle Mayor program. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. WJCU University Heights from the campus of John Carroll University.
are back on the Outspoken Cyclist. If you're just joining me, we're speaking with Lucas Snage. He is the Community and Communications Manager for Bikes, B-Y-C-S. We left off that we were going to talk about the Bicycle Mayors Program, which is what brought me to you in the first place. Let's dive into it. What is the Bicycle Mayors Program? Sure. So it's a network that we initiated in 2016 to accelerate cycling progress and communication between civil society and the municipality of Amsterdam. And the idea as it grew out of Amsterdam is really to accelerate cycling progress by highlighting and supporting the role of civil society in enacting lasting community-driven change. So we seek out and connect with bicycle advocates uh, around the world and try to amplify their work that's being done locally to start to construct what we're calling a transnational narrative of cycling-driven change. So we facilitate the sharing of ideas, the challenges faced by certain cities, and the potential solutions to really create this radical shift in mindset that is coming from the ground up. We think that there is this need to build a stronger bridge between advocates, civil societies, and other stakeholders that are kind of involved in the urban process or in the urban fabric, And that has been a way for us to create those bridges and to also highlight stories that are often not discussed in the bicycle realm. There's often an emphasis on our city, Amsterdam, on a city like Copenhagen, most often not their northern European, quite dense cities. And that is not our vision of a global cycling future. We really don't think that there's one size fits all. Of course, there are certain steps that the city of Amsterdam and Copenhagen have taken to facilitate cycling, such as the construction of extensive bicycling uh, lanes, etc. However, uh, when you look at the reality of different urban typologies, that can't really be done in the same way. And we want to make sure that we have all the best practices from around the world try and come together and really discuss on opportunities and solutions to really improve the conditions of cycling uh, worldwide. So to give you an idea, in 2016, we had our first Amsterdam bicycle mayor, Anna Luton. Uh, we are now mid-2020. We have 100 bicycle mayors from uh, 36 countries, really big growth. And so we're now trying to set up processes to facilitate communication and knowledge exchange uh, as we grow in that manner. How do you find them? How does one become a bicycle mayor? And then I want to talk about some of the roles or objectives that he or she might focus on. Sure. So we have a form on our website that people can fill in directly and either recommend someone in their community, a community leader, or present themselves as a candidate. And then we have a process in place to vet these candidates and take them through this process, which will hopefully lead to a successful outcome. And then we appoint uh, them as a bicycle mayor for uh, the duration of two years. The non-democratic nature of this is due to resources. We hope to be able to hold and engage deeper with these communities in the future. But right now we found a way to vet them, uh, the candidates, in a way that we feel is satisfactory. Uh, So we ask for seven to 10 letters of recommendations by either local government, nonprofit representatives, community leaders, or other people working in the active transportation sector. Uh, We also ask for a detailed work plan that kind of elaborates on the conditions of the city and what that uh, individual would do as bicycle mayor for their city over that period of two years. And then we hold these kind of in-depth screening call 
and finally make a decision after reviewing that application. So sometimes we work with local partners where we engage with them and they like the concept and they help us. Uh, you know, we have a variety of other nonprofits that um, have their vision aligned with ours in terms of uh, either sustainability or just human-centric cities, and we work with them. Sometimes we work with the Dutch consulates and embassies abroad. They are, uh, you know, most often not very willing to help us. So we go through that route. And then sometimes just people reach out to us and we get to engage with really interesting people that we might not have been able to if we were just going through our network of partners. So that's always super compelling when, you know, somebody from the city of Cuenca in Ecuador puts me in touch with another individual who's doing amazing community work. It really highlights this kind of nature of the power of local action that we can then amplify and integrate within this transnational narrative. Let me remind our listeners once again, we're speaking with Lucas Snage. He's with Bikes, B-Y-C-S. We'll give you all the information about the organization and how to find them at the end of our conversation. One of the questions I have is, is about some of the things you ask a bicycle mayor to do, and that is there's a code of conduct. And so I'm wondering what that includes. And then I'd like to know a little bit more about the financial end. Sure. The code of conduct that we have is really to ensure that people that are applying are applying for the right reasons, especially due to the fact that, as I mentioned, as a small organization, we can't have this deep dive into a city just yet um, and really understand the sociopolitical or cultural landscape of that urban environment. So it's really to ensure that, um, you know, people are going in uh, voluntarily of an independent manner are not trying to promote their own political or urban agenda and are really trying to act as this facilitator between different uh, stakeholders in the urban realm and advance this vision of cycling driven change for all democratic demographics we we are starting to really focus on this element where we want to uh, really push this agenda of cycling for everyone. The cycling advocacy scene is quite dominated by white males, and this is something that we want to move past. Uh, we really are starting to encourage bicycle mayors to think about the different communities that their work is being carried out, where they are carrying out their work, how they are trying to be as inclusive as possible. And we also are trying to obviously reflect that in the candidates that apply and that we accept into the network. Um, so the code of conduct is just one of the documents that we have to ensure that our vision is aligned with the various members of the network, because it's quite complex to uh, operate a network from Amsterdam that has reach from Mumbai to Madrid to uh, Santiago, Chile, for example. Uh, so it's cross-cultural, it's messy, but these kind of frameworks enable us to carry this unified messaging and this uh, unified desire to act locally uh, within this kind of broader movement. I do want to know about the financial end and, and what a bicycle mayor it might already be doing that would fit into the network, and that might be the way he or she is financially... Um, rewarded as opposed to expecting money from BYCS bikes. But I wanted to know about language. You are all over the world. I assume, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, that your team is multilingual, perhaps? It is. We have quite a diverse team. One Indian national in our team. I am French-American 
So I speak both French and English, and I speak pretty good Spanish. We have a team member that's based in Panama. But obviously, you know, most of our communication is in English. We are now, since late 2019, starting to have all of our documentation um, in Spanish as well, because basically our network grows exponentially based on regional growth. So, for example, in India, there was exponential growth. A large portion of the network is growing there. And the same thing is occurring in Central and South America. So those are our current focuses. Uh, but we're trying to uh, make sure that our team is as multilingual as possible moving forward. But right now, let's say English and Spanish is our main communication. And of course, we hope to uh, uh, broaden that in the future. I'm seeing that you are in Africa and certainly Western Europe. Not much going on in Eastern Europe. Nothing in in Australia and New Zealand, which I find very interesting, but the United States also has a dearth of, of mayors, and I'm not seeing a whole lot in Canada. And yet, Matt's doing Canadian, and he's having a bicycle mayor on actually tonight, <laughs> would be mm-hmm. would be wow. his bike minds thing, now that I'm thinking about it, which of course this will air after that, but that's mm-hmm. when we're speaking on Wednesday. So does it take a long time to vet somebody to get these these bicycle mayors in place? Because when you look at who at all the pictures of all the different people and where they are, it seems like there's more pictures than there are dots on the map, and that's what I'm trying to figure out. Oh, well, so I think that the map is up to date. There is a very high concentration in India, so there might be some overlapping dots on the map there. Okay. The, the vetting process does take time, and we do make sure that we take our time with it because we need to get the best possible understanding of the candidate. When we look at a city as large as Mexico City, we want to be sure that the person that we appoint is going to be the right representative. So these application processes take time, of course, and we're, as I said, a very small team. So we want to make sure that we do that properly to avoid any issues uh, in our selection or whoever integrates the network. In terms of the geographic distribution, uh, up to this year, I think we had one person in the United States, and there are many reasons for that. First of all, I think that Bikes did not have American citizens on its staff, and the USA is still seen as a rather insular vehicle-dominated, grid-system-laden <laughs> landscape. I don't know how you uh, can say such a is... thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it, well, it's true, but I, I, so I lived in uh, Los Angeles, and, and I was a cyclist in Los Angeles, and I really discovered this burgeoning, dynamic, very compelling bike movement that is really at a national scale that I think ties to other big urban issues in the United States of America, like social equity, et cetera, that is really, really amazing. And I am totally inspired by the work of, you know, whether it's uh, multicultural communities for mobility in Los Angeles or the, yeah, there are just a bunch of cycling groups that, that are doing tremendous work. They, they are operating at a national level. And I think that the linkages that they have are very well integrated at this national level. So maybe that there's there. Yeah, that it's harder to uh, penetrate, I guess, for us. And also, if there is a very dynamic scene at a local level that is connected at a national scale of the US, 
we don't want to also step in. And uh, if we don't have anything to add, we want to make sure that, uh, you know, we don't step on their toes. The work there's being, that's being done is great. However, uh, when we do feel like we have, uh, you know, some value to bring and uh, that, you know, the integration of individuals or, act- or advocates within our network can be beneficial to them, then, of course, we're open to engaging in discussions. So we were really happy this year to have a bicycle mayor in Austin, Texas, Washington, D.C., and New York City, where we're, um, you know, we appointed a couple of months ago uh, an amazing woman called Courtney Williams, uh, who's a bicycle equity consultant there. And the, the, the current state of both social movements and uh, COVID-19 has made our communication uh, more difficult. And we understand that people are, are really busy and overwhelmed in the U.S. right now. But I'm hoping that uh, we start developing more work there because I think that the cultural and behavioral change that is our focus locally can be of tremendous help to change the mindset of certain uh, communities in the U.S. that still associate or still carry this stigma around cycling. I remember very vividly in Los Angeles that if you weren't driving, people thought that either you had a DUI or you couldn't afford a car. And often you see uh, marginalized communities that are using the bicycle as a necessity, or you see kind of lycra, wealthy, hipster guys cruising around the city. And we really want to make the bicycle a tool for everyone and a way to move through the city that is both accessible and seen as valuable to every single member of uh, society. I'm hoping that our work in the U.S. increases in the in the near future. And then in terms of other geographic uh, distribution, something that I, I do want to mention and that is kind of in line with our future vision of the Bicycle Mayor Network is that as we grow in certain regions, our ultimate ambition is one of decentralization. This is tied to our desire to move away or move past this Eurocentric ideal of every city needing to emulate Amsterdam or Copenhagen. We believe that advocates around the world have extremely profound context-specific knowledge about their city and active mobility and how to facilitate that. So as an organization, as we grow in and, and, and continue to increase the number of people in the network, we want to set up kind of these bikes foundations that operate independently, obviously that are in contact with each other and ourselves, but that really have this freedom to operate in a way that highlights um, cultural specificity, local knowledge, local expertise and experience. And for us in Amsterdam to be able to support them through knowledge sharing or ideally in the future, obviously financing. And then we can move from there and the network can grow organically in these kind of regional hubs. Some of the momentum that we're seeing with cycling or I should say with bicycles in the U.S. because everybody can ride a bike. Not everybody needs to be called a cyclist. We always have that conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm seeing some positive things. Hopefully, everything you're saying will happen sooner rather than later. We've been speaking with Lucas Snage. He is the Community and Communications Manager for Bikes, BYCS. Lucas, tell our listeners how they can find out more and maybe apply to be a bicycle mayor. You can visit our website, bikes.org, bycs.org. We have all of our information about the website. We also are very active on social media, so you can follow us on Twitter at 
bikes.org. And uh, you'll be able to learn about the program, our other activities, and support us, follow our work. Um, our website will redirect you to all the uh, proper channels to apply. Or if you want to suggest someone in your community to join our network, uh, we're always open to that as well. Well, I appreciate you spending time with me today, and we will stay in touch. We will post all of the information on our social media. Thank you so much, and good luck with the organization. Yeah, thank you for having me. All righty. Bye-bye. My thanks to Lucas Snage for joining me on the show this week. If you're interested in learning more about bikes or would like to apply to become your city's bicycle mayor, log on to bycs.org. My thanks also to Gabe Klein. I always enjoy speaking with him. One more note before the usual sign-off. Sea Otter Play registration is now open for the challenges. If you want to participate in one of the virtual events or learn more about the festival and all its many options, you can log on to seaotterplay.com. I hope you enjoyed the show this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you don't already subscribe to the podcast, you can do so at just about any podcast app out there. Please take a moment to rate the show, and if you have something to say, review it too. I hope you have something good to say, though. Remember that you can join the conversation on our Facebook page. You can always send us a tweet at Outspoken Cyclist without the E, or leave a comment on our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com. Have a great week. Please stay safe. Wear a mask. Wash your hands, stay socially distanced when appropriate, and of course, if you have a chance, go for a ride. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We hope you enjoyed this week's show and welcome your comments and thoughts on Twitter and Facebook. Visit OutspokenCyclist.com to hear this and all past shows. We'll be back next week with more great conversation and news from the world of cycling. Remember, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher and never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.